Right. Okay, so sometimes when you come to church, church feels like a, a, a wedding, right? It's a celebration. We're excited to be here. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus saved us. This is great, right? So we have a celebration. But other times, it's more like a funeral. Sometimes when you come to church, it gets heavy. Sometimes when we come into the presence of God Almighty, there's a heaviness in the room. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get crushed by the weight of God's glory. And so I think sometimes it's important for us to get crushed. We need to get crushed. I need to be crushed. So tonight, unfortunately, I want to be the bearer of good bad news. That is, it's going to be a funeral tonight. Tonight, we're going to see a funeral. We're going to see Haman's funeral. And we're going to experience, I think, some of that weight and maybe it will crush us, and maybe that will be a good thing. So let me, let me explain to you why. Here's the last few verses that we covered last week in our story. And it says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but when Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, and when he told his wife and his friends everything that had happened, they said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent... You will not overcome him, but he will sure, you will surely fall before him. So essentially what the wife and the friend said is, okay, he explained to them what happened. I went to go kill Mordecai, but when I got there, Xerxes put me in charge of dragging him through town and making, you know, and, and, and telling everyone that this is, the, this is the guy who's high and lofty, and this has been a bad day. And so his friend said, if that's the case, then you're a dead man. Once Xerxes finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and that you want to kill the Jews, you're a dead man. And then here's the last verse of chapter 6, which rapidly transitions us to a funeral. And the verse reads this. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So when you, when you read this verse, the king's the, the, the king's men have come to grab Haman and bring him to Esther's dinner. I think it would be appropriate for us to feel that hard um, swallow in your throat. You know what I mean? That mm, <laughs> kind of a feeling. Do you ever get that? I remember getting that when I was a kid. It's, it's, it's this thing that you get when you know you're going to be in trouble, you know, when you know you're going to get it. Like I remember so many times when I was young playing at home and being bad and my mom saying, you just wait till your father comes home. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I'm just having fun and playing and everything's going just fine until you hear the door close and the keys hit the table. Ching, and then you get that thing in your throat, you know, here comes the pain, you know, it's coming. <laughs> I think that's what Haman is experiencing here because his friends just said, when Xerxes finds out, you're going to die. And then right when they're, come on, we got to go. Esther's waiting for you. <sighs> now, I think Esther probably feels that same hard swallow in her throat because she has to be very careful about how she's going to present this to the king. Now, this is difficult for her because she could say, king, uh, my people are going to die and you sent a decree out to kill him. And then that's going to make the king defensive. What? Who are you, who, what are you talking to me like this? I do what I do. I'm the king. So it could go either way for her. It could either save her or it could make the king mad. You know, the king could say, how come you didn't tell me you were a Jew? We've been married five years. You never told me you were a Jew. So I think she has that same tension in the room. So here we are back at the same scene we were technically yesterday. Yesterday, Esther invited Xerxes and Haman to dinner. Xerxes says, what do you want? Tell me up to half the kingdom. I'll give it to you. She says, come back tomorrow for another dinner, and then I'll tell you. So now here we are at dinner. Xerxes is looking at her. Come on. You can tell me. It's okay. Esther, mm. and here's what she says. If 
I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it pleases the king, here's what I want for my request and for my wish. Let my life be granted me for my wish, and let my people be granted for my, my request. For we have all been sold, and, and I and my people, to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. She wants to make sure he doesn't miss it, right? <laughs> We've been destroyed and killed and annihilated. That's a lot. So she says, here's what I want. I want you to save my life and the life of my people because we've been sold to die, to be totally wiped off the face of the planet. But then look what she also says. She says, if we had only been sold merely as slaves, I would, not have, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. She said, if we had just been sold as slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you with this. You've got more important things to worry about. But the thing is, is that we've been sold to be annihilated, to die. So I kind of need to talk to you or else I'm a dead girl. See, Esther's being very wise here. She has to be careful. She has to tiptoe through this tension in the air to see how she can get Xerxes to hear what she's saying. She could have said, you sent a decree out to kill everyone and I'm one of them everyone's. But that's not what she does because then he's going to get defensive. She has to find a way to diffuse his defense mechanisms and not back the king in a corner. One commentator said, it's very much like what Nathan did to David. Do you remember the story of King David? He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then when he did that, he got her pregnant. And so he needed to fix this problem. So he killed her husband. And the way he did it was he he, he told his chief general to go fight in the army, put the husband in the front of the army, and when the battle gets hot, pull away, leave him there, and he'll die. So he killed her husband. And Nathan is God's prophet, and God says, you need to go confront David. And so Nathan has to be careful. A, he's the king. You don't want to push the king in a corner. And B, um, we've already seen that David kills people if he doesn't get what he wants. So Nathan's got to be careful. So Nathan works up a plan. How can I diffuse his defense mechanisms so that he'll hear me? And then after hearing me and understanding me, then I can kind of say, yeah, this is, this is you. So what Nathan does is he tells the story. It's a famous story. I, at least it's famous to me. I, I, I like the story. He makes up the story about a neighbor of his. Well, I got this neighbor and he's got like a hundred sheep and they're all beautiful sheep. He's got a hundred great sheep. And then his neighbor has one little you lamb, just a little lamb. But when this guy with a hundred sheep gets hungry, instead of killing one of his sheeps, sheep, because <laughs> you can't say sheeps, can you? Instead of killing one of his sheep, he goes next door and kills that man's one sheep. So David, his defense mechanisms are diffused. He's listening to the story. He's riveted. And then Nathan can say, yeah, you're that guy. You're that man. Esther is doing the same thing here. She's saying, someone is trying to kill me. And we're going to see Xerxes act the same way David act. Look, look, look at how Xerxes acts. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. This is really a powerful verse. If we could read it in the original language, which is Hebrew, and if we could read Hebrew well, which I'm from Texas, and so I don't do any language well. Um, so I'm not even going to try to read it in Hebrew. But if I could read it well in Hebrew, it would sound really clear, the staccato cadence. 
In fact, one commentator says it actually sounds like machine gun fire. It sounds like, who is he and where is he and how dare he do this? And then in the Hebrew, she responds exactly the same way, the same syncopated staccato cadence. A foe and enemy, this wicked amen. So if you could be in the room, you'd be like, (laughs) there's a lot of anger in the room, a lot of tension. And she says, him. And the king rose in his wrath from the dinner, from the wine drinking, and went to the palace garden. I don't know if you're feeling it, you know. I mean, I've not had machine guns shot at me. You've had machine guns shot at you? Yeah, so you're feeling it probably. Oh, tension. And here's Xerxes getting off the table, and he leaves. He's got to cool off. And again, I just can't help but think about my dad, (laughs) you know, sitting at dinner. Mom tells him what I've done. And he gets up off the table and runs away, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what's he doing? Is he going to get the paddle? (laughs) You know, where where is he going? What's happening? Oh, God, please let this just be over with. Save me, God. Am I the only one who experienced that as a kid? Anyone else? Okay, good, good. That's what I feel. I kind of feel for Haman right now because Xerxes just leaves. Now, it's important for us not to forget something. I need to say this. Never, ever forget that God is love, okay? I mean, that's one thing that we preach a lot here at Missio Day. God is love. God's on a mission because he loves people and wants to save people. So never forget that God is love. But we also need not to forget that he is wrath. The Bible says God is wrath. He is judgment. He is justice. He is angry. And those two sound like they contradict each other, don't they? How could God be wrath and at the same time love? See, we kind of have to answer this question because this is where our story is taking us today. It says the king rose in his wrath. And if you look at the text, it's clearly showing us a picture of the king's wrath. So how can God be wrath and love at the same time? It, 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 it's this question that everyone's asking. Everyone's asking this question, actually. People out in there, people who aren't Christians are asking this question, and I've been in the church long enough to know that most of us in this room are asking the same question. How can God be angry and be love at the same time? Or here's a better way of saying it. If God is love, then how can he send people to hell? It's a good question. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's a good question. It sounds like a contradiction. Isn't Isn't it a contradiction? I mean, it doesn't, is, doesn't that trip you up? Can I just be honest with you? It trips me up. <laughs> How can God, who's love, send people to hell? Now, what we need to talk about tonight, just briefly, I think, is hell. And, or, or I want to try to answer this question in a short form. What I mean is I want to take kind of a 10,000 mile, foot, whatever. 10,000 foot, is that what I'm trying to say? 10,000 feet, not miles. That's a long, that's... It's high up there every 10,000 miles. 10,000 foot view. I want to get a 10,000 foot view of this. What I mean by that is I don't want to do a comprehensive look on hell. But I will say this. Um, in October, I want to do a series. I don't know what I'm going to call the series yet. This is what I'm thinking about. Five reasons why Christianity is hard to believe. And, and I actually just, you know, do like a six-week series on this. And I actually want to make a huge campaign. I want to put it on Twitter, Facebook, 
door hangers, newspapers. I mean, I'm talking, I want to blitz our community with this information because I, I really want to dialogue in this room and in community group with people who are struggling with these questions. Because I really do think that if 80% of America does not go to church, we really need to answer these questions. And I'm just going to be honest with you. The typical, stereotypical Christian cliche answers aren't going to work. They don't work for me. You know, when people say, well, you know, blah, 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 that doesn't work for me. I need a better answer. I need someone to take this question seriously and really answer it. So in October, we'll do a more comprehensive look at hell. You know, we'll look at Hebrew and Greek and we'll study the word Ghana and we'll figure out what, you know, Dante's Inferno is all. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into it deeper then. But for tonight, I just want to get this 10,000 foot view at it just, just real quickly. By the way, if you can come up with a better title than this, something that's really riveting, Something that, you know, like why you shouldn't believe in Christianity or something like that. I don't know. Something that really gets people's attention while at the same time maintaining integrity. Help me out with that, okay? Here's why we have to deal with it. Because if you look at your Bible, um, there are two verses that serve as bookends to Haman's trial tonight. Now, the first verse is verse 7. We just read it. And the king arose with his wrath and his wrath. And then the last verse of this chapter says, then the wrath of the king abated. So the wrath of the king must be abated. So we're being forced to deal with Xerxes as a picture of God because he's the, he's the Persian God. Look at God's wrath. It must be abated. And that seems hard, I think, to swallow. So does the king have a right to be wrath, to have wrath? To be angry? I think he does. Because here's why. Someone's trying to kill his wife. Someone's trying to kill the queen. Who is he and where is he? And where, where, where? Of course he has a right to be angry. Of course he has the right to have wrath. If he doesn't have wrath, then we've got an altogether different problem, don't we? What if Xerxes said this? Honey, are you sure? You're probably making just a big deal about something. Hey, could you pass me that bottle? I'm running low here. And by the way, could we wrap this up because I want to catch the game? If Xerxes said that, you and I and all of us would agree he doesn't love Esther, right? If Xerxes did not care about the injustice that was happening to her, he does not love. But because he loves, he wants to know who it is. So you see, the absence of anger doesn't increase love. In fact, it's the opposite. More love would require more anger towards injustice because injustice makes you angry. Let me, let me remind you what happened to King David. When David heard this fictional story about this fictional dude who took some fictional sheep or lamb, this is what the Bible says. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. There's no man. This is just a story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, by God, this man deserves to die. That's what injustice does. It burns in you and it makes you mad. So does God have a right to be wrathful, to be angry against injustice? In order to be God, he must. He has to hate injustice. Let me, let me read a quote to you. This is from a guy named Timothy Stoner. He wrote a book entitled The God Who Smokes. And I just think this is funny. His last name is Stoner. <laughs> and he writes a book called The God Who Smokes. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Good book, though. Really good book. Listen to this quote. If God did not get angry with sin, he would not be God. 
If God forever turned his eyes away from the abuse, perversion, pollution, wow, really, the pillaging, raping, spilling of innocent blood, then he would not be just or righteous. So God rages and roars and smokes. He thunders and shakes and burns like this massive forest fire because at the core of his being, God is love. In order for him to be God, he must be angry with injustice. He must smoke. He must shake. He must be violent towards injustice. And if he wasn't, we wouldn't think he was love. We would think he was a pushover. We would think he was, right? If he just said, go, just, I just forgive you all. I forgive you, Hitler. I forgive all of you. Just it's cool. I'm a cool guy, you know. I just want you to like me. We wouldn't think he was God. Here's another Timothy. The Christian understanding of hell is, listen to this, the Christian understanding of hell is crucial for the understanding of the love of God. Hmm. The Christian understanding of hell is crucial for understanding the love of God. Ironically, people, by getting rid of the idea of judgment in hell, try to make God more loving, and in the end, they make him less. God's justice must, he must be just and that doesn't weaken his love. So why is it that we get conflicted? Why is it that we get confused? Why is it that when we hear in the Bible that God is angry, that God is ju justice, that God is wrath, that God is jealous, that we start to think, then how is the God of the Old Testament so mad and the God of the New Testament is so nice? Such a nice guy. You know, Jesus is soft and he's cool. I like Jesus. He's got long hair. <laughs> but God in the Old Testament, he's mean. And I think the reason why is because all of us, and you may disagree with me, but and you're free, free to tell me if you do. I think all of us deep down inside, we have some suspicion about God. We're suspicious as to whether or not he is really good. We're suspicious as to whether or not he is really telling us the truth. We're, we're suspicious even of grace. Really? You're just going to forgive me? Give me, give me life? We're suspicious of God. And I think the reason why we're suspicious is because of our dads. <laughs> Sorry, dads in the room. <laughs> I mean, because even in this sermon, I've, I've mentioned my dad like more than once. And I didn't do that on purpose. It's, it's because when I start to think of God's anger and wrath towards injustice, and I start to think of my own sin, I can't help but think of my own father being angry. And so... Here's what Timothy Stoner said. We look at God's emotions from the grid of our own brokenness and experience. And what he's talking about is God's emotions being these terms we see in the Bible, jealousy, wrath, anger. And what we do is we read, we read those words. We see God through the grid of our own kind of screwed up lives. And so we look at God and we see anger. And what we see is our dad when he was angry. And my dad was angry. And, he, and, and, and sometimes his anger wasn't appropriate. But well, I'll just be honest with you. I, I'm angry. <laughs> when I see Josiah back-talking his mother and not listening to her, Josiah, you listen to him. You know what I mean? And, and my wife's like, Mike, you're scaring me. <laughs> you see, the thing is, is that my dad wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. Xerxes is not perfect. And so our wrath and our anger is not perfect. And Xerxes and my dad and myself, our anger and our wrath isn't always appropriate. But God is perfect, and his wrath is always perfect, and it's always appropriate. And I don't see God flying off the handle like I do. Josiah! 
I see God saying, that makes me mad because that hurts my heart because that is injustice. And I have to punish that. I wish that I could punish my kids with that sort of control. But God's wrath is perfect. So here's a question I want to discuss. Because I think this could be interesting, especially if we're honest and vulnerable with one another. How does your view of God get twisted because of your own brokenness and experiences? And what I mean by that is, you don't have to, this is not, you know, beat up on your dad day, okay? Um, I'm not talking about how is it that your dad ruined your picture of Abba Father, but maybe even how your own messed up life ruins your picture of Abba Father. Because you know your own, when, when you know how you get jealous, you know how you get angry when someone cuts you off on highway, or maybe your boss, you know how your boss fired you because you messed up and that didn't seem right and whatever. We have all kinds of experiences and all kinds of, what's the other word? Brokenness. So how does your brokenness and your experience twist the way you see God in his holiness and his justice and anger and wrath and love and grace and mercy? Let's talk about that for about three minutes. So the king returns. He returns from the palace garden just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. Okay, so there's a lot happening here that I need to unpack because you're probably going to miss it unless you're paying attention to all the details. So, so the first thing is, is this. Xerxes gets up from the table and goes to the garden because he needs to cool off. Um, I, 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 I should do this more, right? When I'm angry, go outside to our backyard. We don't have a garden um, and cool off. And, but Xerxes also is trying to think through this because he is in a conundrum. He's in a predicament. The predicament is, is that, see, Esther did it. Esther was able to get his wrath up He's, he wants to fight this injustice, but now he's realizing this is my fault because he's the one who signed the decree. He gave his signet ring to Haman and Haman stamped it. Xerxes passed it through and this decree was sent to the known world under the law of the Medes and the Persians. We've covered this in this series. The law of the Medes and the Persians means it can never be revoked. Let it be written and let it be done. And so Xerxes has got to figure out, how can I get out of this predicament? This is my fault. I signed that decree. It can't be revoked. I want to save Esther. What can I do? We need a fall guy. Someone is going to have to take the fall. And what Xerxes realized as soon as he walks in the room, he has a perfect opportunity to put the fall on Haman. See, he can't just kill him for doing something that he gave him permission to do. But now he can kill him for assaulting the queen. Is he assaulting the queen? No, not really. He's begging for his life. Queen Esther, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And he falls at her feet. He falls at the, at the couch. But he walks in and says, oh, even in my own house, he's trying to kill her? Now, maybe he's a little confused because she did say, he's trying to kill me. And then he walked in the room and there he is. The other thing is, is that in the Persian Empire, there was a law that stated that no man should be within so many feet of the king's woman. So, so he sees this and says immediately, we have to kill him. So a bag goes over his head. Boom. Darkness. I don't know. Maybe you've seen movies. Maybe you've seen it on the news. You've seen soldiers escorted out with bags over their heads. And this is essentially what's happening to um, Haman. He's sitting there groveling for his life. And the next thing he knows, boom. Darkness. He can't see anything. He can't say anything. He's being dragged out of the room, faceless, before the presence of the king. 
And that's important. He'll never be able to see the king again. And so here's the question. 24, well, here's a thought. 24 hours ago, Haman was living the life, living the dream. He was on top of the world, right? Just yesterday, he was invited by Esther to the king and the queen's dinner, just him and the king and the queen. And then he goes home and he brags to his friends and his wife, look at my house, look at my many sons, look at all the promotions I've got. Look, even the king and queen like me. And now today, boom, a bag over his head. And he'll never see his sons and he'll never see his home and he'll never see the king again, just like that. I mean, he woke up this morning thinking this is gonna be the perfect day. I'm gonna kill Mordecai and then I'm gonna go to dinner with the king and the queen. It's going to be awesome. I, I bet you he had the whole day planned out to a T. I bet you he had his clothes ironed and laid out on the bed. These are my morning clothes to kill Mordecai, and then I'm going to come home, take a bath, and these are my evening dinner clothes. Got my whole day planned. And then in one day, actually, you could say it like this, in one second, boom, it's over. There's a bag on your head. Okay, so I, I, I don't mean to be depressing. I did say this was going to be heavy tonight. So let me just ask this question. At, at the risk of sounding like a fundamentalist Baptist, let me just go ahead and ask this question. If you're honest, you know that you deserve that, right? I mean, the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin, that means that when you sin, the payment that you receive for that sin will be death. So when you sin, you're going to get paid for that sin, and that payment is death. And so have you sinned? Yes. Have I sinned? Yes. So we deserve it. We deserve to die. We deserve to have God angry because we've done injustice. And so, I don't know about you, but this sometimes frightens me. You could just be living your life. Everything's going fine. Let's just be honest. For most people who refuse to believe in God and refuse to trust God, they're just living their lives and everything's fine. For the most part, everything's fine. They have no God. They're far from God, but life's good. You know, I've got a car, got a boat, got a flat panel, television. Everything's going just fine. For you and me, we may be living in complete sin, but everything's going just fine. You know, got a car, got a boat. Got an iPad. <laughs> and then it could happen. And you know this. In 24 hours, in a split second even, boom, it could all be over. And the question I want us to think about, even though this is drab and depressing, and I'm sorry, but let me just ask this question. Where will you be when that happens? What hope will you have? It's time to pay the piper. No one cares about your boat. <laughs> no one cares about your your promotions. You'll never see your sons again. It's over. I don't know about you, but I, I might spend too much time thinking about that. It, it scares me. One of these days, it's going to be over for me, and I'm going to have to be standing in front of the king, and will I see his face, or will there be a bag over my head? Okay, I want to stop being depressing for a second and tell you this. There's good news. Come on, you can give me an amen on that. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's good news. And the good news is that someone's already paid the piper. 
Someone's already taken the fall. So you don't have to take that fall. There's good news. And listen to me. That's why it's good news. Let's not forget why it's good. Because good news is only as good as the bad news that it sorts. Does that make sense? Good news is only as good as the bad news that it erases. And so here's the bad news. You're going to hell. Because you're a sinner. And you must pay for your sin. But here's the good news. God loves you so much, he went to hell for you. God loves you so much, he died for you. So you don't have to pay for your sin. How good is that good news? It erases that bad news. That's good news. And so when we struggle with this question, how can God, if he is love, send people to hell? Where's the good news in that? Listen to C.S. Lewis as he answers this question. If C.S. Lewis can't get it right, I don't know who can. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. So he's going to pull Jesus here. You ask me a question, I'm going to ask you a question back. In the long run, the answer to your question is a question. And here's the question. Well, what is it that you want God to do then? And let me, before we read, read the rest of the quote, let me just say this. Because we must understand that like Xerxes, God is in a predicament. Does that make sense? Xerxes is in a predicament. He's got to figure out how can he revoke this law of the Medes and the Persians that can never be revoked. And at the same time, save Esther. There needs to be a fall guy. Haman takes the fall and he's going to save the day. God is in the same predicament. How can I be just? How can I be righteous? How can I punish injustice? While at the same time, be grace and love and compassion and give people an opportunity to have life everlasting with me, happily ever after. How can I do both of those? So C.S. Lewis asked the question, what are you asking God to do? Do you want them to wipe out their past sins and at all costs, give them a fresh start? <laughs> Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Is that what you want God to do? Do you want God just to erase all their sins and say, ah, forget about it? <laughs> and here's the turn. But that's what he's done. That is what he's done on Calvary at the cross. Alas, I hate to tell you, but I'm afraid that's exactly what he does. He does wipe away our sin. He does take, but it's better. He takes the fall for us. You see, sin and justice and wrath serve as sort of a counterbalance to God's love. And it has to be paid for. And he pays for it. So is he wrath? Yes. Is he love? Yes. And even more. Because less wrath doesn't make more love. It's actually the opposite. The more angry he is, the more love he has. And he pays this in his son, in Jesus, on the cross. God says, we're in a predicament. We need a fall guy. Jesus says, I'll be the fall guy. I'll take the hit so that these people can have life. Hell proves that God is just because sin must be paid for. But the cross proves that he is grace and love. Amen? Amen. That's good. That's good. Well, let's finish our story. After they put this bag on Haman's head, the eunuch is talking and he says, hey, you know what? There's these gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, comma, by the way, whose word saved the king. So now it seems as if Haman has been, hmm, he's been um, treacherous. Right? He's, he's, he looks as if since he killed the man that saved Xerxes' life or wants to kill the man that saved Xerxes' life, it looks like he's a traitor. 
Moreover, there's this gallows, this cross that's hanging in Mordecai's backyard at 75 feet high. That's amazing. It's the highest thing we've ever seen in the Persian Empire at this time. And the king said, well, let's hang him on that. <laughs> Again, coincidence, right? <laughs> this book is good. I like this book a lot. So they hang Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then, and here's the end of the story, the wrath of the king abated. Wrath must be abated. Someone has to pay. Someone has to die. And Haman died in this story, and Jesus died in our story. And again, we see this story revealing for us this great reversal. We talked about this last week. Yesterday, when um, Haman was going to kill the king, I mean, kill Mordecai, there was this reversal. Mordecai gets elevated and Haman becomes his servant. Today, the same thing. Morde I mean, Haman built this cross to kill Mordecai. There's a reversal. Haman is being killed upon this cross. You and I have the same reversal because you and I, just like Mordecai, we refuse to worship God. We refuse to bow down to Jesus. We have sin in our life. We have pride in our life. We have arrogance and selfishness in our life. And we refuse to worship Christ. And so we deserve to die. And so there, we could build a cross ourselves with all of that sin. And Jesus says, instead of dying, instead of you dying on that cross, I'll die on the cross of my enemy. Just as Haman died on the cross of his enemy. And even more ironic, the reason why Haman built this cross was because he wanted to kill Mordecai for not bowing down to him. And so he said, I want to kill not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. And he called the Jews these intolerant people who don't obey our laws. So he wants to kill all the Jews because they won't bow down to him. And in the end of his life, where is Haman? Bowing down to a Jew. Please save me. Last thing he sees, last thing he knows is himself bowing down to this Jewish woman at that. What an interesting, interesting story. So I like to tell you tonight that Jesus is the better Haman. He dies for our sins. He pays the price. He's the fall guy. And, and so here's the question. Again, how can a good God send people to hell? Well, God doesn't send people to hell. He saves people from hell. And because here's what I think happens. I think when we, when we hear this question, how can a good God send people to hell? What we imagine in our mind is this characterization of God. Here's God throwing humans into the pit of hell. And they're all climbing out. Help, no, let me out. No, give me one more chance. And God is saying, I'm sorry, it's too late. It's hell for you now. You should have. <laughs> yeah, you're in hell of a predicament. <laughs> But that's not the case at all. God's not sending people to hell. He's saving people from hell. And that's why he dies on the cross. Listen to this. Jesus says, I'll go to hell for them. And when he was on the cross, he had a bag over his head and he was not able to see the face of his king. He was not able to be in the presence of his God, of God, his father. In fact, that's what he said. Father, why have you forsaken me? Is that not what hell is? The separation of God? Here's Jesus on the cross enduring hell for us. The creed even says he descended into hell. He took hell so that we wouldn't, want, wouldn't have to. In, in our value statements, if you go to our website and you click on values, one of our first values reads, hell no, Jesus yes. Because the reason is we, we believe in hell 
And we believe that hell exists because God is just and justice must be served. But we also believe that God doesn't want anyone to go there and he's created a way to save them through Jesus. So how do you answer this question? How can a good God send people to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't. He's done everything to save them from hell. Last quote from Timothy Stoner. Because God is holy, God must be angry with sin. And his anger is telling us much more about his love than about his hate. And so tonight, we're going to take communion. And what I would like to challenge us to do is, as we break this bread, and as we dip it in this cup that represents Christ's blood, we'll see just how much he loves us. Because he poured out his wrath on his boy. He poured out his wrath on his son who endured the cross and who endured hell so that we wouldn't have to. It's not that God wants to send us to hell. It's that God wants to save us from that place. And Jesus did everything to save us. And so we come tonight. Yeah, it's heavy. It should be. He gave his life. He endured hell. But we also get to rejoice and celebrate with this table to say, this is what Christ has done. Jesus says, do it as often as you gather in remembrance of me and what I've done for you. So let's prepare our hearts and worship the God who is love. And that love does not negate the fact that he is justice. Would you pray?